Well, good morning. It is an honor to be back here again. I've been here a few times, I think, but very exciting message for you, talking about the inspiration of Scripture. As you can see, as I travel around the country and out of the country, I'll ask people, uh, Christians, why do you believe the Bible? Well, because I'm a Christian. Okay. Why are you a Christian? Because I believe the Bible. <laughs> hey, but why do you believe the Bible? Because I'm a Christian. And round and round we go, and it's like, well, how do you know God wrote it? Well, I, I, I just know. I mean, I, it's what I believe. I mean, I just feel it. I just, I just know. I'm thinking, well, that's great, but why should anyone else believe it? Just because you feel it or you think it is, why should anyone else, including your own children or grandchildren, uh, so it's a good question. So we're going to be talking about that here this morning. Uh, and some of you, I know, don't know me from a hole in the ground, so I'm going to very quickly go over my background. Um, that's me, and that's a hole in the ground. So you can see there are a few differences. I also have a very, very dry sense of humor I have to put up with for a little bit here. Uh, I was raised in a Christian home, and you can see very clearly that that is a Christian home. Um, I placed my trust in Christ when I was in early grade school years. Then I went to public schools all the way through high school. I graduated from Waukesha North. You know, everyone's got to be from somewhere. Maybe not that exciting. But uh, after I graduated, I went to a Christian college, John Brown University in Arkansas, to study mechanical engineering. Partway through, I became more interested in physics. But John Brown didn't have a physics major, just a minor. So I had to leave there in Arkansas and come back to Wisconsin. I figured if I'm going to go to a state university, I might as well come back to Wisconsin. So I came back and I transferred to UW-Whitewater to get a degree in physics. And that's when my world changed quite a bit. Going from a small Christian college where my engineering professors actually opened up every class in prayer to a large state university where my physics professors did not open up in prayer. They were all evolutionists, some of them were atheists, and they were telling me in essence that everything I believed was wrong. <laughs> And that made me feel very uncomfortable to be surrounded by these PhD scientists who I assumed had a lot of evidence for what they believed. But I realized probably for the first time in my entire life that even though I knew what I believed, I didn't know why. How did I really, really know that God existed? How did I know the creation account was scientifically valid? That was huge, studying physics. How did I know there was a worldwide flood? How did I know that Jesus was the Son of God and rose again on the third day? How did I know the Bible was the inspired Word of God? I was raised to believe every single one of those things, and I did believe them. I just couldn't defend it. And that made me feel very uncomfortable to be surrounded by these Ph.D. scientists um, and not be able to defend what I believed. So God put it in my heart at that point in my life to start looking into these things, so I did that my junior year of college. So I have been uh, researching and speaking for 30 years now on the authority of scripture and creation, evolution, and things like that. Um, about 10 years ago, I felt called into full-time ministry. So I left the computer programming business that I had and went into full-time ministry, traveling around um, the country and sometimes out of the country speaking on these topics. Last year, I gave 182 talks. <laughs> And I thought, this is just getting crazy. That's just way too many. I've really got to slow it down. So this year I'm only giving 190. Uh, <clears throat> something happened. It's, it's a good problem to have. Um, I really enjoy doing it, but we're making a few changes in our ministry to become more effective and more efficient and not just more busy. Uh, but I really enjoy talking about this because 
uh, people need to hear of not only what we believe, but why we believe what we believe. Um, this is not my family. It's just a picture of them. But my wife, Amy, and I, we've been married uh, almost 24 years. My son, Taylor, he's uh, going to be 21 this month. He's at UW-Whitewater uh, studying accounting and finance. And my daughter, Tori, she's 19. She's uh, taking some classes at Waukesha County Technical College, and she's nannying for a family of three about 24 hours a week. So she's still at home, and my son's at home during the summer. But So they're still around. This picture was taken at the Grand Canyon uh, last year, July. Um, I know that this church has gone on the Grand Canyon tour a few times. How many of you have actually gone to the Grand Canyon tour? A number of you have. That's excellent. Uh, the rest of you need to go. I'll talk about that in just a second here. But... Um, I actually co-lead the tour, the tour you guys went on with Russ Miller, I think, wasn't it? Um, he and I co-lead the tour. I've been on it three times, did it once last year, July, and then this year we did July and October again. In fact, we've got another one coming up, so if anyone hasn't gone and they would like to go, we're doing it again next July. It's a, it's a great tour, not just seeing a big hole in the ground, but it's first-hand testimony of the authority of Scripture. It's, it's real history, Genesis 6 or 8. There was a worldwide flood. One day we spend walking along the rim, and you're looking one mile down to the, Grand, to the Colorado River. <laughs> now, I'm actually afraid of heights, but I figured it wouldn't be an issue because the canyon's not high, just really deep. <laughs> and then the second day, we're actually on the river looking up at the canyon, and we give lectures along the way, giving scientific evidences for the authority of scripture, evidences for rapid deposition of those layers, and then rapid washing out of that canyon. It wasn't the Colorado River over millions and millions of years. It was a catastrophic event, a Genesis flood, you know, Genesis 6 through 8. So we give those evidences and tie in scripture. It's a very encouraging talk, very easy. It's not rock climbing and repelling. You're walking on a flat paved path, and then it's not whitewater rafting where you're falling out of the raft. Uh, it's just, you know, it's a very smooth ride on the Colorado River. So if anyone's interested, we've, we've had kids go that were five or six years old. We had a couple go that was about 80 years old, so easy trip. We were going to use this flyer here to promote the trip, but we thought we might not get enough people interested in going, so we're not using that one. But I actually have the flyer at my table out in the lobby if you're interested. I was also invited recently to speak on a Caribbean cruise. Uh, it's called Singing at Sea. There's going to be 24 Southern Gospel groups performing. Uh, it's going to be amazing. Um, the uh, brochure that we have on our table actually doesn't even have my picture on it because they produced that before they had invited me. But um, I've got a PDF copy of it where they've added my picture and a little blurb on it. But that's going to be in February if anyone's interested. Again, we've got a brochure out at the table if you want some more details on that. One of the stops is the Atlantis Resort. Um, on the Bahamas. It's this really, really beautiful place. I've been there a number of times going back next month to speak again, probably for about the fourth time. But uh, really, really interesting trip and a lot of great information. There'll be some other preachers on there as well speaking. And very, very quickly about our ministry. For 10 years, we have been the Creation Education Center. And you can imagine what we've been talking about. But we weren't just talking about creation. In fact, the emphasis of our ministry has always been the authority of Scripture, that we can trust the Bible from cover to cover. But being the Creation Education Center, we would get pigeonholed. People would say, oh, I know what that's about. And there are in many people's minds and even pastors' minds some negative stereotypes with the idea of creation. So what would happen is I would give a talk somewhere, someone would get excited, they'd grab my card, they'd go to their church, say, hey, pastor, you got to have this guy speak at the church, this is really cool. The pastor says, oh, Creation Education Center, oh, yeah, I know what that's all about. 
as, as kind of a controversial topic. It's too divisive. You know, there are different views out there even within Christianity, and it doesn't really matter anyway. No, we're not doing that. And so if I try to follow up with that, they won't even return the phone call or the email because they just, they're all those stereotypes are going through their mind about this message. So we wanted to change our name that wouldn't allow people to pigeonhole us but would also still describe the breadth of what we talk about. So we are now the starting point project. And here's why. Everybody, no matter who they are, whether they're a Christian, an atheist, a Muslim, a Buddhist, a Mormon, everybody starts somewhere with their belief system. You've got to start somewhere. It's impossible not to. For Christians, we start with the idea that God exists and the Bible is his word. And then we define everything else based on that starting point. Our ideas of what science is and how it works. History, ethics, morality, philosophy, all those things are defined by the fact that we believe that God exists in the Bible's his word. Other people would have a different starting point. And then you could just naturally ask them, hey, what's your starting point? Some people don't even realize they have one, but they think through it. They could tell you something, and then you could ask them, oh, what made you choose that as your starting point? And why are you confident that that will help you accurately define everything else around you? So get into these natural conversations, and it can lead into talking about creation and evolution. So I will continue to talk about that subject, but the bigger picture is really the authority of Scripture. So that's why we've changed our name. We're still in transition. This was just last month. So we do have a new tablecloth for the table, but all of our materials still say Creation Education Center on there, but we have a new website and all that. So anyway, we're in the middle of all that. But today we have a huge problem. Statistics show us that 50 to 75%, probably more like 80, 85% of Christian students end up walking away from their faith before they finish college. Again, that should be very alarming to everybody here this morning. More than half to three quarters of our own kids. These are not kids from religious homes. These are kids from fundamental evangelical Christian homes walking away. Now, there are a number of factors, but one of the biggest factors is that these students have a set of beliefs they were handed without convictions. <laughs> kind of like me. I was taught all the right things. I just didn't know why they were true, and I didn't really think about them a whole lot when I was younger. I didn't care. I was like, fine, okay, God, Bible, Jesus, that's fine, cool. Then you go off to college, and you run into professors who are more than willing to tell you why those things can't possibly be true. There's no way there's a God. Look at all the evil in the world today. In the Genesis creation account, nobody believes that anymore. I mean, come on, science has thoroughly disproven that. And there's no way there was a worldwide flood. Where did all that water come from? Where did all that water go? How did Noah get all those animals on that ark? Jesus is not the Son of God. He's just another religious guy. And the Bible's filled with errors and contradictions. There's missing portions. There's extra stuff that got shoved in there. It's been translated so many times and on and on and on. It's very easy for these students to walk away who might have been struggling with life to begin with anyway. It's not that college is so bad. College is just exposing an issue that was there for quite a while. So this is very important that we, especially as parents and grandparents, know why we believe what we believe. You cannot give your kids something you don't have. And if you're just telling them, well, we go to church because we're Christians. Why are we Christians? Because we believe the Bible. Why do we believe the Bible? Because we're Christians. Why are we Christians? Because we believe the Bible. You know, Stop asking questions. Just get ready to go. And we do that very often. Eventually, you know, they're thinking for themselves, and like, forget that. That doesn't make any sense. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm in college now, and I'm in the real world to get a real education, to get a real job. And my professor said that whole Bible stuff, oh, yeah, which version do you use, the King James or the New King James or the NIV or the NAS or whatever? Or what about the Book of Mormon? What about this? What about that? And all these reasons to just leave the whole thing behind. And so that's what's happening today. 
I'm going to play a portion of a radio interview. I'm going to actually play it on my phone. I'll just hold it up with a mic. And here's the background. This program is hosted by an atheist. It's his program. The caller is a pastor. And they have been discussing, we're going to listen kind of the middle of it, about a little bit less than a minute and a half of it. Um, They've been discussing the existence of God, specifically that this pastor thinks that everybody knows that God exists. So that's what they're talking about. I'm going to play a little bit of it here, and then we'll talk about it. So you disagree because you're, you're convinced, probably because of Romans 1, that everybody knows that God exists. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you believe Romans 1? Uh, because it's the Bible. Okay, why do you believe the Bible? I wasn't necessarily prepared for that particular question. Um, you're a preacher and you're not prepared for a question on why you believe the Bible? I'm not trying to be rude. I'm just, I mean, this, this to me is like the, the basics. What, what, why would anybody believe, why, would I, why should I care what the Bible has the, to say? The reason, the reason why I'm not prepared for that particular question is because you didn't answer what I had to say. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I, 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 I might have missed a question. What was the question? Because all I heard was you saying you disagreed. Uh, I was trying to make a point to you. It wasn't necessarily a question. My point was... Well, then how can you accuse me of not answering your question if you didn't ask a question? Your point is that everybody knows that God exists, and I don't agree with that. And I'm asking you to prove that it's true. It's not about proving that it's true. You're, then, you you, then you we can never not, prove that it's true. It's then we are in an impasse. And thank you for acknowledging that you can never prove it's true, which demonstrates it's irrational. I'm going to have to ask you to call back because we've run out of time. Kind of interesting, huh? Now here's a bigger question. What would your response have been? Let's say you called in the program to talk about whatever and the host asked you that. What would you say? It's at this point that many Christians that I talk to say, I don't know, tell me, what should I say? And so that's what we're going to be talking about in this particular presentation. Evidence for the inspiration of the Bible. But I have a quiz for you before we get any further. I'm going to put a passage up on the screen. See if you can tell me where it's found. It says, My righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, and mine arm shall judge the people. The isles shall wait upon me, and on mine arm shall they trust. Now most people say, oh, that's Isaiah. No. Oh, Jeremiah? Nope. Psalms? Nope. Here's the answer. Second Nephi chapter 8, verse 5. You're like, second what? It's the Book of Mormon. It's like, wow, that's weird. That raises another interesting question, though. How do you know the Book of Mormon is not the inspired Word of God? They claim it is. Right on the cover it says it's another testament of Jesus Christ. Well, it's not. How do you know it's not? Because the Bible is. How do you know the Bible is? Because I'm a Christian. Why are you a Christian? Because I believe the Bible. What about the Book of Mormon? Well, it's just, it's not. How do you know it's not? Because the Bible is. And I mean, that's really how we respond way, way too often. We, we need to have answers for these questions. There's no shortage of religious books out there. This is just a sampling here. How do we know which of these are the inspired Word of God? Maybe they all are. Maybe none of them are. Maybe just two. Which two? How would you know? Really good question. There was a debate a couple years ago. This was actually at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. A friend of mine invited me to go between a Christian and an atheist, and the topic was, would the world be better off without religion? And when I heard about that, I thought, I would never be part of that debate because I'm not a religious person. 
It's like, wait a minute, you're traveling around talking about God and the Bible and Jesus and all this. Here's why I say that. I think that religion is man's idea of God. I think the reason we have so many different religions is because there are so many different people and they all have their ideas of who God is, what he is, why he created us, what he wants from us, what happens to us when we die. I'm really not that interested in finding out what everybody else thinks about God. On the other hand, Christianity, or the Bible specifically, is God's idea of God. (laughs) And that fascinates me to no end. So while I say I'm not a religious person, I am a Christian and I believe the Bible from cover to cover. Now, I know Christianity is one of the world's religions, so in that sense, yeah, okay, I'm a religious person. But I like to make the distinction between man's ideas about God and God's idea about himself. So that makes it very important for us to know how do we know that the Bible really is God's idea of God. It's what he's telling us about himself versus what a bunch of people made up. Very important question to answer. How many of you actually have a copy of a book at home that's signed by the author? Just a few of you. You can buy my book. I'll sign it. Um, Wouldn't it be interesting to have an autographed copy of the Bible? Kind of makes your head spin. Like, That's a weird, weird thought. I think we do have an autographed copy. I think that God's signature is all over his word, and that's what we're going to look at. Well, how would we know? How would we know that God wrote a book? I'm going to show you four tests that you could use to determine if something shows evidence of having been written by God. These are not special Bible tests. These are tests you can apply to any religious writing out there to see if it actually gives evidence that, yeah, God actually wrote that. We've got internal consistency, historical accuracy, prophetic accuracy, and scientific accuracy. Very quickly, internal consistency. Does the book you're looking at contradict itself? If it does, it's pretty good evidence God didn't write that because he wouldn't contradict himself. Secondly, historical accuracy. Does it get history wrong? If it gets history wrong, it's pretty good evidence God didn't write that because he would know history. Prophetic accuracy, if it makes predictions about the future and they've been proven false, that's good evidence God didn't write that because God would know history. He knows everything. Then you'd know the future. Scientific accuracy, if the book you're looking at makes statements that could actually be tested scientifically, not that it has to, but if it does, if they've been proven wrong and all the scientists agree, like, oh yeah, that's just definitely wrong, that's pretty good evidence God didn't write that because God would know science. He knows everything. Now, with the time we have, we're just going to be focusing on this last one, the scientific accuracy of the Bible, or specifically what we call scientific foreknowledge. What does that mean? Well, the Bible was written a long time ago, roughly from about 1600 or 1500 B.C. to about 180. long time ago. Long before we had microscopes and telescopes and all that. But there are things in the Bible that we're finding out that are scientifically accurate, but the scientists are saying, well, wait a minute. How could they have possibly known that? They couldn't have known that, but yet they were right. Well, that's evidence that God inspired them. They didn't know in and of themselves God was inspiring them in what they wrote. And we're finding that out today. It's like, wow, that's pretty amazing. So that's actually evidence of inspiration. Now, Romans 12.2 does not say, be ye transformed by the removal of your mind. <laughs> We don't check our brains at the door. God wants us to use the minds we have. But the skeptics say, well, yeah, you Christians, you guys ignore science and facts and all that. You just have this mythical belief 
Now, we know what the verse says. It says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. God wants us to use the minds he's given. And when we read scripture, he illuminates us and he helps us understand things properly. Now, you've probably all heard of Bill Nye, the science guy. He's actually a pretty good speaker. And I think he does a great job when he's teaching kids about volcanoes and electricity and magnetism and lightning and all that. But when he starts talking about things that happen in the unobserved past, like the origin of the universe or the origin of life, I think he's way off in his conclusions. And he's no friend of Christians or creationists. And this is one thing that he said. So I say to the grown-ups that if you want to deny evolution and live in your world, and your world that's completely inconsistent with everything we observe in the universe, that's fine, but don't make your kids do it. We need them. We need scientifically literate voters and taxpayers for the future. We need people that can, we need engineers that can build stuff, solve problems. What's he saying? Well, if you as an adult want to believe in this fairy tale of creation and the Bible and all that, I suppose that's okay, but don't make your kids do that. We need them. If they don't believe in evolution, they won't be able to do science. If they don't believe in evolution, they won't be able to build buildings and make cell phones and land on Mars someday. You can't do that if you don't believe in evolution. That's what he's saying. That's his opinion. And he is. He's entitled to his opinion. I'm going to give you another quote from a scientist. Bill Nye that actually isn't really a scientist. He's an engineer, but he's a pretty smart guy. I'm going to give you a quote from a scientist, someone who's pretty sharp, Dr. Mark Kirshner, founding chair of the Department of Systems Biology at Harvard Medical School. Can't be too dumb to have that position. He's not a Christian, but this is what he said. In fact, over the last 100 years, almost all of biology has proceeded independent of evolution. Molecular biology, biochemistry, physiology have not taken evolution into account at all. What's he saying? He said you don't have to believe in evolution to do real science. They do science all day long without even thinking about evolution or being dependent upon it. Just the opposite, and I would agree with that. Science today has nothing to do with whether or not someone believes in evolution. I think they're actually very disconnected, and we have something we call a false dichotomy, a choice. Well, what do you believe? Do you believe the Bible or do you believe science? That's an awkward question for Christians. If you say, well, I, yeah, I believe the Bible, then you're implying you don't believe in science, but then they're going to say, oh, I, I, I could have sworn I saw you on your cell phone this morning. Well, oh, that's right, you don't believe in science that made that cell phone. So you say, well, yeah, I, well, sure, I, I believe in science. Well, then you're implying you don't believe in the Bible. Well, then you can't be a Christian if you don't believe the Bible. So it's, it's awkward. And I've had many people ask me, well, what do I believe? And I always say, well, I believe both. And they're like, well, no, 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 that's not an option. Why isn't it an option in their mind? Because the assumption is that science has disproven the Bible. And if that were true, well, then, you, yeah, you can't believe in both. You've got to pick which one you're going to trust. But in reality, true science always backs up the Bible in fact, in reality, almost every major area of science we have today was founded by a Bible-believing Christian. Science owes its origins to Christianity. Many scientists know that. They just don't like to admit it or talk about it. Here's some examples. Antiseptic surgery, bacteriology, calculus, chemistry, computer science, electronics, electrodynamics, electromagnetics, fluid mechanics, galactic astronomy, gas dynamics, genetics, hydraulics, hydrostatics, oceanography, Optical mineralogy, paleontology, pathology, physical astronomy, stratigraphy, thermodynamics, thermokinetics, vertebrate paleontology, and the scientific method, all founded by Bible-believing Christians. So for anyone to say no real scientist believes the Bible, 
they don't, don't only not understand science, they don't even know history. They don't know where science came from. But yet you hear those statements all the time. Not only is belief in evolution not required to do science, it actually gets in the way. It's a hindrance for doing good science. And here's an example. Something called vestigial organs, leftover organs. Scientists had a list of about 100 things in your body that are useless. They don't do anything. They're leftover from earlier stages of evolution when you used to be a fish or an ape-like creature. So they don't do anything anymore. It's proof of evolution because God wouldn't design you with all this useless stuff in your body. Well, they've studied that list a little bit further and they've dwindled it down a bit, down to zero. <laughs> they have found a use for every single one of those things, including the appendix. It's part of the immune system. Can you live without your appendix? Yeah. You can also live without your arms. It doesn't mean they don't have a purpose, <laughs> just because you can live without them. If your appendix goes really bad, yeah, you might need to have that removed or your tonsils, but doctors are very hesitant now to remove those things unless you absolutely have to because they do serve a purpose. It was belief in evolution that got them just to yank it out. That's not doing anything anyway. Just take it out of there. Take your tonsils off. They don't do anything. Now they're like, well, we're only going to take them out if it's absolutely necessary. So it was belief in evolution that led to bad science. Then we have something called junk DNA. When scientists were looking at DNA, they said that only 2% of your DNA does anything. 2% codes to make proteins which carry out functions in your body. The rest, junk. It's useless leftovers from evolution. It's proof of evolution because, again, God wouldn't design you so that 98% of your DNA doesn't do anything. It's just junk, useless. Well, it's been studied further, and now they realize the 98% they said was junk, that's more complex than the 2%. It's instructions that tell the 2% what to do. It's just blowing them away how complex it is. I give an entire talk on DNA. It's just the more we look at it, the more levels of complexity we see. And it's just they cannot get their heads around. Now we're talking about epigenetics, information above the DNA. It just goes on and on and on. So it was belief in evolution that was a hindrance to science, whereas a creationist had motivation for looking into things further, which led to good science. But then people say, yeah, but the Bible's not a science textbook. And I would completely agree with that. It's not. And I'm glad it's not because even fewer people would read it. It'd be even harder to understand. And more importantly, it would have to be updated and corrected constantly. Just like science textbooks. So much has changed since I got my degree in physics. It's, you know, kind of depressing in a sense. But that's how science works. I mean, we think we know something, and we discover something new later. Okay, this wasn't quite right. Now it's this. Now it's that. It just constantly changes, and that's, again, just the nature of science. But the Bible isn't that way. It doesn't have to be constantly corrected over and over and over because it was inspired by God from the beginning, and you can trust it from cover to cover. But what the Bible does do for us is it provides a framework to properly understand and interpret science because facts don't speak for themselves. Every fact you've ever heard or ever will hear has to be interpreted. And the way you interpret things is by using your starting point, the thing you already believe. You use that to look at some facts and say, oh, this is what I think this means. So we're using our starting point or worldview or framework or whatever you want to call it to interpret things. And the Bible provides an awesome framework to properly understand areas of science such as astronomy. The Bible does talk about astronomy. It says in Psalm 33, 6, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. 
God is the one who created this universe. And his fingerprints are all over it. Um, but then the scientists will say, oh, you see, see these swirling gases out there? That's the birth of a star. Oh, isn't it beautiful? And sometimes they get teary-eyed and all choked up. It's so beautiful. You know what they're seeing? Swirling gases. <laughs> yeah, but, but what happens is gravity wants to pull the particles together to form a star, and that's how stars form. Yeah, gravity wants to pull those particles together, but the closer they come together, the more gas pressure we have, and gas pressure is much stronger than gravity. They will never form that way. Well, you're right about the forces, but what happened is the star over here exploded, and that force pushed these gases together to form that star. Nice story. Where'd that star come from? Well, that was swirling gases, and there was another star that exploded and pushed that one together. Nice story. Where'd that star come from? And on and on. They can't even get it started. And there are so many interesting things about astronomy. We're just scratching the surface here. Jeremiah 33, 22, As a host of heaven cannot be numbered, either the sand of sea measured, so I'll multiply the seed of David, my servant. What's he saying here? Jeremiah, writing over 3,000 years ago, said the stars are uncountable. You can't count them. That made no sense to him when he said that. Because he could look up at the night sky and see pretty much the same stars we see today. And you can see about 3,000 stars from any point on the earth. Look up in the sky, yeah, there's a lot of stars, but it's not, I wouldn't say it's uncountable, 3,000. It's like me saying, oh, the pews in this sanctuary are uncountable. No, you can take a little time, but you can count them. Why would Jeremiah say that? Because they're uncountable. Today, modern astronomers tell us, yeah, I don't know, 10 trillion trillion? Just throwing out a ballpark figure. They don't know. They're uncountable. There's a massive, massive number of stars, just like Jeremiah said. I've shortened up this talk a little bit, but one slide I have talks about uh, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Paul says that one star differeth from another in glory. He was saying they're all unique. That didn't make any sense. You look up at the night sky, they all look the same, except some seem a little brighter, a few seem a little dimmer. Other than that, they pretty much look the same. Paul says, no, they're all, they're all unique. Modern astronomers tell us, yeah, they're all snowflakes. There's not one that's just like another one. They're, they are unique. That's what Paul said 2,000 years ago. He didn't have a telescope to, to know that. He was inspired by God. Today we have the Hubble telescope. You may have heard something called the Hubble Deep Field. Secular astronomers wonder, is the universe pretty much the same everywhere you look? Or is it different? There are clumps of stars and galaxies here and then like nothing there and then clumps here and there. So they're constantly, you know, looking at the sky. Well, there was one spot in the sky they wanted to focus in on. And it was about 124 millionth of the entire sky. It looked kind of dark. They said, let's focus the telescope just in this tiny, 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 tiny spot. It'll leave the aperture open and see if anything develops. Looks like it's empty. Well, they left it open for a number of days, and this is what developed in that uh, square there. 3,000 stars. But those aren't stars. Those are galaxies. 3,000 galaxies. And each one of those galaxies probably has 100 billion stars in it. And that's just in one spot of the sky, one twenty-four millionth of the whole thing. Are the stars uncountable? Yeah, just like Jeremiah said over 3,000 years ago. Absolutely amazing. The Bible talks about geology, helps us understand that. Says this in Genesis six seventeen. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has a breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. The Bible talks about a worldwide flood. Today, you can go to the Grand Canyon or other places on earth, and you can see all these layers. 
It is a fact that those layers are there. How they got there is a matter of interpretation because none of us were around when they were deposited. So we have to try to figure out, okay, we know they're there now, but how did they get there? The Bible gives us a great framework. The Bible says there was a worldwide flood. What would a worldwide flood do? A worldwide flood would lay sedimentary layers laid down by water all over the planet, probably filled with fossils because things that were living would have gotten buried. Guess what we actually see there? We see these sedimentary layers having evidence of being laid down rapidly, filled with billions and billions of fossils. So the Bible gives us a nice framework to properly understand and interpret geology. The Bible gives us a framework for biology. It says this in Nehemiah 6, 9, or 9, 6, You give life to everything, the multitudes of heaven worship you. Today we have something called the law of biogenesis, which states that life only comes from pre-existing life. It's so consistent that they made a law out of it. Nothing has ever, 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 ever contradicted it. Every time we see a life form, it came from a pre-existing life form. What do they teach in every public school system and state university? That life came from non-living chemicals. Dead chemicals were banging around and, hey, the life form sprang from that. That's the opposite of this law that they established. It violates that law. There's nothing in science to show that could be remotely possible. But that's what they believe because they don't want to believe in God, that God did anything miraculously. They want to explain everything naturalistically, but all their natural explanations go against the known laws of science. Here's an interesting quote from an evolutionist. He said, The belief that life on earth arose spontaneously from non-living matter is simply a matter of faith. Wait a minute, scientists don't have faith. I mean, they're in laboratories. They're, they're experimenting and proving things, right? No, he's saying they have faith that somehow dead chemicals came together to form a living cell. There's no evidence for it. They just have faith that that had happened. It has nothing to do with real science. In Genesis 1.24, And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. God says that he created kinds of creatures that could reproduce, and they would reproduce something after their same kind of creature. Can they produce a nice variety? Oh, yeah, a great variety, but always within definite limits. That's what we see in science today. We see varieties being produced, but always with definite limits. Today, dogs, dingoes, coyotes, and wolves can all breed together because they're the same kind of animal. You can breed a dog and a wolf, and you get a wolf dog. It's not a surprise, but you can't breed a dog and a wolf and get a cucumber. That was not going to happen. So we see a nice variety, but always within these limits. It's exactly what Scripture says. So Scripture helps us properly understand biology. <clears throat> we also have this. Moses wrote in Leviticus 17.11, the life of the flesh is in the blood. Blood is very, very important for life. In fact, every human red blood cell has about 270 million molecules of hemoglobin that carries oxygen throughout your body. Just the slightest amount less, and you couldn't even sustain your life. You wouldn't be alive. What's interesting about that is doctors used to drain blood out of people when they got sick. That's largely how George Washington died. He got pneumonia. So he goes to the doctor and said, oh, he's sick. He got bad blood. We need to drain blood out of him. So he drained some blood. He got sicker. Like, wow, this guy's really sick. We need to drain more of this bad blood. Drain even more blood. He goes, wow, this guy's really sick. He got sicker. We got to get more of that bad blood out. They ended up draining about a gallon of blood out of him. And he died. <laughs> if they would have taken scripture seriously, they thought, no, okay, he might be sick, but you don't drain the blood out of him. The life of the flesh is in the blood. The reason I have a barber pole up there is you used to be able to go to a barber to have your blood drained. It's called a bloodletting. 
You go there to cut your arm, drain some blood, and wrap a towel around there to stop the bleeding, <clears throat> absorb some of that blood. Sometimes they would hang these towels on a pole to dry. The wind would catch it and wrap it around the pole. That's why today barber poles have red stripes on them. A little bit of free trivia for you. won't charge you for that one. It's kind of interesting, though. Moses also wrote in Exodus 15:26, If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, I will put none of these diseases upon thee. Here's the background of this. God creates everything in the beginning. It's perfect. Creates Adam and Eve. They are perfect. They sin. They disobey God. They choose to do their own thing. They separate themselves from God because of their sin. God could have just smashed them and started over. He said, no, I love you too much. I got a plan. I'm actually going to send my own son to die on a cross to pay for the sins of the world. And the rest of the Old Testament is God playing out that plan to send his own son. And we know that part of God's plan was he chose a people group, that through them his son would be born. Through them the Messiah would come. He chose the Hebrew people who become the Israelites and the Jews. Those are God's people, and that through them the Messiah is going to come. Well, Satan hates God. So the entire Old Testament is Satan trying to wipe out God's people, because if he could wipe them out, the Messiah can't come. So the whole time Satan's trying to wipe them out and God's trying to protect them. In this passage, Moses is saying, hey, listen to what God is telling us about these health practices and we won't get the diseases that are wiping out all these other nations. That's what's going on there. But we learn from the book of Acts that Moses was raised in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He went to Egypt, you. (laughs) Well, today, if someone graduates from a university, let's say they get a Ph.D., and then they write some books, you would expect that a lot of the information in those books came from what they learned at the university. It's just kind of how it works. Well, Moses goes to Egypt U, and then he writes five books, the first five books of the Bible. So do we see Egyptian wisdom in the Bible? We should have. Moses just kind of made it up on his own, and that's what skeptics say. Oh, you know, they weren't inspired by God. They're just making this stuff up. So do we see Egyptian wisdom in the Bible? Well, let's take a look at Egyptian wisdom. This is the Ebers Papyrus, written about 1550 B.C., contains over 800 magical formulas and remedies for things, one of which is if you've got a splinter, you're supposed to apply worm blood and donkey dung. Modern scientists say, yikes, we don't know where they got that from, but that's just wrong. That's bad. You can get tetanus spores, causes lockjaw, you can get very sick, you could even die. So again, we don't know where they came up with that, but you you don't want that. That's wrong. That's what Moses was raised in. And then he writes the first five books of the Bible. So do we see that type of stuff in the Bible? Here's an example of what we do see. Moses talks about touching a dead body. Today, we know about bacteria and germ theory and all that. You don't want to touch a dead animal. You, You can get sick from that. You could maybe even die, so you don't want to do that. This is what Moses wrote in the book of Numbers. Whoever touches a dead body of anyone will be unclean for seven days. He must purify himself with the waters of purification on the third day and the seventh day, and then he'll be clean. What are these waters of purification? A few verses earlier, he tells us. The priest is to take some cedar wood, hyssop, scarlet wool, and throw them on the burning heifer or cow. Now that sounds bizarre. Most of you are old enough to remember the Beverly Hillbillies. It sounds like something Granny would come up with in the kitchen, put some possum in there and stir it around, just weird stuff. But modern scientists say, no, that's not weird at all. That's really, really interesting, and here's why. 
the heifer or cow ashes and the cedar wood combined to make lye, L-Y-E. That's soap. That's a caustic soda. You touch a dead body, a washing with soap would be a very good thing. The hyssop plant, that converts into thiamol, which is isopropyl alcohol. It kills bacteria. Touching a dead body, killing bacteria, that'd be a good thing. The scarlet wool, it's like an SOS pad, forms a gritty substance, can scour and help get that stuff out of there. And then applying it on the third and the seventh day, bacteria grow very well in a damp environment. So you want to wait a few days for this to dry out, and then you apply this stuff. Wait a few more days, apply it a second time, and you're considered clean. Modern scientists say, wow, that's a great natural remedy, especially if you don't have antibiotics that we create today. Did Moses know anything about bacteria and germ theory and isopropyl alcohol? Obviously not. This is evidence that God said, hey, Mo, write something down here. So he's writing it down. He goes, okay, got it. What next? And God says, okay, here's another thing. So here's another example. Moses wrote in Genesis 17, 12, for the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised. Why did Moses say the eighth day? He could have said the third minute, the 17th month, the fifth year. He could have said anything. But he said the eighth day. Well, modern scientists have determined something really interesting. That there are two major elements in your bloodstream that are necessary to clot your blood. So you don't bleed to death when you get a cut. Vitamin K and prothrombin. Actually, on a molecular level, there are about 24 events that have to fire off in order. You missed one of those you'd bleed to death. Event A has to happen first, which triggers event B, and then C, and then D, and all the way down. So here's a question. How did that evolve over millions of years by accident, just one piece at a time? It couldn't, because the creature couldn't clot its blood. If it can't clot its blood, it can't reproduce and continue on. Even if it had A, B, and C, that's, that's useless. Even if it had A, B, C, D, E, F, and G, it's still useless. What if it had A, B, R, H, W, I? No, it's got to be all 24 in order. On a larger level, though, we got vitamin K and prothrombin. Modern scientists have found out that vitamin K develops in a newborn somewhere between days 5 and 7. That's when it kicks in. And prothrombin looks like this when we graph it. Across the top, the black line, that's the normal level of prothrombin in your body. The numbers across the bottom, you know, two, four, six, eight, those are days after birth. You can see on day one, the level of prothrombin is pretty high. You got about 90% there, not bad. But then between days two and five, it drops way down, dangerously low to only 30%. And on day eight, it spikes to 110% of its normal level. It will never be that high again the rest of your entire life. So if you're a baby and you have to have a surgical procedure done, day eight would be the perfect day because for sure you have vitamin K and you have more prothrombin than you'll ever have the rest of your entire life. Now, did Moses know anything about prothrombin and vitamin K and all that? Obviously not. This is evidence that God again said, hey, Mo, write this down. So he writes it down. Again, my wife and I, we've got two kids, and before they were born, when she was pregnant, we went to the hospital to go through the birthing classes to find out what to expect. And one of the things that happened was the nurse said, hey, if you have a baby boy and you'd like him circumcised, we'll just take him down the hall, we'll bring him back. And I was nervous, thinking, shouldn't we come back like on the eighth day? And she kept talking. And then someone else raised their hand and said, hey, nurse, you, you just said you give the baby a shot. Oh, what's the shot you're giving the baby? She said, oh, that's vitamin K. 
So today they artificially introduce vitamin K immediately and you got 90% of your prothrombin on day one, not an issue. So they can do it on day one, it's not a moral issue. So I actually shared with the class what Moses had to say about circumcision. <laughs> uh, I don't know if they were impressed or not, but it was an opportunity to talk about the inspiration of scripture. So what we see here, just scratching the surface, is that the Bible actually passes the test of scientific foreknowledge. All these things that were written thousands of years ago that modern scientists say, oh, wow, that's impressive. How in the world could they have done that? They, there's no way they could have known that. You're right, they couldn't have known that. They were inspired by God and everything they wrote. In fact, the Bible passes all four tests of internal consistency and historical accuracy and prophetic accuracy and scientific accuracy. 27% of the Bible is prophetic in nature. 27% is predicting the future. That's over 8,000 verses predicting the future, and every single one has come true in every minute detail, with the exception of those that are for the future. Some of the prophecies are for what's going to be happening yet. All the other ones have come true. Not just one or two, but hundreds of prophecies in every minute detail. How is that possible unless God was actually inspiring those writers? So for someone to say, oh, I don't think that, you know, that the Bible, these writers were inspired by God. That's fine. You can have that opinion. But if that's your opinion, you got a lot of splaining to do in a sense. <laughs> you know, okay, let's say they just made that up. How'd they get all those prophecies right time and time and time and time again? How'd they get all that science right over and over and over? How do they get everything about history correct? How is it that you've got 40 different authors writing over a period of 1,600 years on three different continents and three different languages, all different educational backgrounds, talking about hundreds of controversial topics, and yet they all agree? How's that possible unless God is inspiring every single one of those writers? So in the full talk that I give, I go through all four areas and give more examples from each one. But the overall conclusion of scripture that we read this morning, Psalm 119, 160, Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. But probably more important than that is James 1, 22. It says, Be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. I can honestly tell you that I have never once in my entire life ever doubted a single word of the Bible. I just haven't. But I can't brag about that or be proud because I spent too much time not obeying it. <laughs> and I really think God is looking at me saying, that's, that's you know, great that you believe it. I'm gonna, how about obeying it? How about being consistent with it? How about taking it seriously? You know, it was a lifelong process. It's not that I've arrived now, but there was a point in my life where God hit me with a brick because I'm a little bit thick. So God says, hey, I'm serious about this. He helped me get more serious about it, and uh, I really stepped things up. It's still a process, and a long ways ago, I'll never arrived there, but uh, I think God knows that I'm on a better track now and with, with believing, not only believing, but then obeying it too. So don't just walk out this morning saying, okay, fine, I guess the Bible's really from God, but commit to reading it every day and praying that God would use it to transform your life into the image of his Son so that you can go out and you can win arguments with people and beat them over the head. No, so that you can be more confident in the gospel message, so that you can be more proactive in sharing that message with those around you who don't know the truth. Um, the skeptics aren't, aren't stupid. They're not dumb. They're not ignorant. They just have the wrong starting point. Most of the skeptics I know are really smart, and some of them are really nice people. They don't need different facts. They don't need me to come along and say, well, if you just knew what I knew, then you'd be a Christian. No, they need a different starting point. 
to use to interpret these facts. This is a spiritual issue. They've been spiritually blinded, and we need to be incredibly gracious and patient with them because God has been incredibly gracious and patient with us. So we need to be confident in what we believe, not to win arguments, but be confident so we can go confidently share that gospel message. And if they throw out questions like, well, the Bible, there's what about all the other religious books out there? There's errors and contradictions, science is disproven, and on and on and on. We could say, you know what, those are good questions. If you really want to know about that, I can help you with that. That doesn't mean you have to know all the answers. You just have to know that answers do exist and have to know where to get some of those answers. Um, Contact our ministry and other ministries out there that can help you with some of those things. But it would be nice just to have like an example or two that you kind of keep in your back pocket so someone brings up that question and say, hey, that's a great question. Let me just give you an example or two. If you need more, I can get you more. So we need to know what we believe. And God doesn't say, hey, if you get a chance, yeah, maybe look into some of this. He commands us to be ready with an answer. Reasons for the hope that we have so that we don't lose our own children and grandchildren, like I mentioned in the beginning. This is not an option. We all need to be in a position of understanding why we believe what we believe, which means we need to be equipped. First and foremost, we need to study God's word. This is the most important thing. You don't need degrees in physics and archaeology and Greek and Hebrew. Read God's word. The Holy Spirit can guide you into all truth. But if you want to be even better positioned to be able to answer some of these challenging questions and then deal with our children, especially as they, they go off to school, there are many, many resources available from a lot of different great ministries out there. As I close here, I'm just going to very quickly highlight what we brought along here. Everything we have is also available on our website as well. But what's out at the table right now, we have nine individual DVDs, all recorded in a professional TV studio, so they're great for lending to someone. They're not kind of hokey or, hokey or uh, chintzy. Very powerful, very graciously presented to. It won't be offensive to any skeptics at all. Um, we've got one talk on there, and is the Bible the inspired word of God? That's somewhat similar to the talk I gave this morning, but we go into all four areas on that. Uh, the white one up there, faith is not a four-letter word. I think that's the talk I gave here when I was here last time. Kind of blows away very graciously the myth of facts versus faith, that skeptics are all about facts and proven things, and Christians, oh, we just have faith, you just have to believe it. And there's a number of DVDs up there on creation and evolution, dinosaurs in the Bible, and, and other topics that are there. We also have the 12-session seminar series. We've taken information from the nine, shortened some of them up into 12 half-hour talks with the study guide inside with follow-up questions. So it's great for homeschool, Bible studies, Sunday school classes, whatever, um, to go through these shorter sessions in order if you want. That's available at the table. The book that I wrote, it's been out for a while. This particular edition just came out last month. Uh, and I've been told by some of the world's leading creation scientists they think it's the best overview that's out there, which I was honored to hear. Very easy to understand, very powerful, talks about a lot of stuff, not just all these technical facts and things like that, but you know, what is a worldview, how does science work, and all the interpretation behind there. And then we get into the origin of the universe, origin of life, origin of species, fossil record, genetics, evidence for the inspiration of scripture. A lot of what I shared here is in the book and a chapter there on inspiration of the scripture. There's an entire chapter in there on the gospel message. So it's great to lend out to people. It's not just a bunch of facts trying to disprove evolution. It's really about the Christian worldview and the gospel message. So that's available at the table. I've written seven pocket-sized booklets. This information is in the book, but I wrote these first. And a lot of people, they won't read a whole book, but they'll read a little booklet on carbon-14 dating, or dinosaurs in the Bible, or who created God, things like that, or there's a little booklet on the inspiration of Scripture as well. 
We have a free email newsletter, comes out once a month, and in it uh, you'll see the you know, different tours that we're doing there. You'll see my speaking schedule, where I'm going to be one, a three-month a three outlook. Uh, and then also, each month I pose a different challenging question. And then I answer it briefly in an article there. Uh, one month, not too long ago, the question was, should you take the Bible literally? And it's an interesting question, and the answer is not as straightforward as you might think. People say, well, yeah, you're a Christian, yeah, you take the Bible literally. No, I don't. Wait a minute, you don't? You don't take it literally? The short answer is, I take the Bible contextually. The portions that were written as a literal historical narrative, I take very literally. Yeah, that actually happened. The portions that were written as poetry, like much of the Psalms is poetry, it says that God covers us with, with, with his wings. I don't take that literally. It's not intended to be taken literally. It's not trying to tell us God really has wings and they're really covering us. No, it's poetic saying God protects us. So I take the Bible seriously and I take it contextually, just like you would read any book. No one just picks up a book and says, I'm going to take the whole thing literally no matter what it says. No, why would you approach the Bible that way? So I take it very, very seriously. I believe it from cover to cover, every single word I believe, but we take it contextually. So the, the article that I wrote goes into that in a little bit of detail to help you with your approach. Because if you say, well, yeah, I take the Bible literally. Oh, yeah, well, the Bible says this. Well, um, hmm, they can stump you because there are portions you should not take literally because it wasn't meant to be taken that way in its context. So we have to be careful how we respond. So each month I throw a different question out there that really makes you think, and it helps strengthen your response that you'll have ready for others when they ask. Very, very quickly also, I've been speaking for 30 years, have never charged a penny and never will. But the main way our ministry moves forward is primarily through our monthly donors. This is totally between you and God, and I am convicted that your first and foremost financial priority really should be to your local church here. Beyond that, if you think this is an important message that other people need to hear, if you decide to become a monthly supporter of our ministry, we're a 501c3 nonprofit, so it's tax deductible. But if you decide to become a monthly supporter, we want to give you a free set of our DVDs and a free copy of the book to take with you today, not just as a thank you, but as a great set of resources to not only strengthen your own faith, but to help you mentor your own children and grandchildren, and then also reach out to friends and neighbors with the gospel message. So if you're interested in that, you can see me at the table. Then you can also help us get connected in other churches and other places for speaking. This is how that works. Most of you have a connection somewhere. Maybe you used to live in California or Wyoming or Maine or Florida, and so you know the pastor there, or you have an uncle who's a pastor somewhere. All we ask you to do is fill out this form with your information on the top, and you can just write ABC Church Wyoming. We don't even need the name of the church or the phone number or anything. Just say you've got a connection, turn this into us, and then you contact your former pastor or your uncle, whomever it is, and ask them if they would accept a phone call from me. That's all you have to do. <laughs> you don't have to give them my background or share any details at all. Just say, could Jay give you a call? I think you'd be interested in having him speak. Could he call you? And when they say yes, if they say yes, then you just email me or call me and say, they said yes, here's the name, here's the phone number, and I'll take over, and I will answer all their questions, tell them that we don't charge anything for our engagements, it's a very encouraging message, a very positive message, and very biblically based for their congregation. <clears throat> so uh, you can help us get connected. Uh, I don't cold call really anymore. That doesn't work. Pastors are way, way too busy to be returning phone calls and emails for people they've never even heard of. But when there's a personal connection, that can help. So our, that form is at the table as well. You could fill out 
already mentioned the two tours, Grand Canyon next July, Caribbean next February. That's on the table as well. And then lastly, our website, our new website is thestartingpointproject.com. Uh, the website has a bunch of those articles that I've written, some video clips, <clears throat> our speaking schedule and things like that. You can stay in touch if you have questions. You can email us or even call us directly when things come up. But I appreciate you allowing me to talk, you know, a million miles an hour. Uh, just a lot to cover here, just scratching the surface. My intention was not for you to memorize all these facts or anything. The intention was to have you drink from a fire hose and overwhelm you with the fact that you can really trust the Bible. It really is inspired by God. You can be confident in claiming that, and there are many, many reasons behind that. It is a very reasonable faith to believe that the Bible is inspired by God. If you believe it's not, that's also a faith, but that's a very unreasonable faith to say that, no, God didn't write this. So I intended it to be an encouragement for you, to have you more proactively go out and be willing to share the gospel message because you're even more confident than ever in the inspiration of scripture. So I will close in a brief word of prayer and look forward to seeing you out in the lobby afterwards if you have additional questions. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this time we've had to look at the inspiration of your word. And I just pray for each person here this morning that they would be greatly encouraged by that. Um, I pray for those who are here, which is probably the vast majority of people here this morning, God, who have a personal relationship with you. They don't just believe you exist, but they have a personal relationship with you. They place their trust in your son, Jesus Christ, and his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of their sins, and they will be able to spend eternity with you. I pray that their faith would be greatly strengthened so that they'd be better positioned to share the gospel message with a lost and dying world. And then for anyone who might be here this morning, God, who doesn't know you, uh, who's just checking it out. Maybe they're skeptical. Maybe they don't even believe you exist, but they're here this morning, God. I'm just honored that they even took time to be here this morning. This is perfect place for them to be. I pray that they would not put off this decision of who you are and placing their trust in Jesus Christ any longer, but that they get their questions answered today so that they can spend eternity with you. And they got the rest of their life to look into some of these other interesting questions. And we just thank you for your graciousness and patience you show us each day. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.